I guess I'll start off with this, and we'll go from there. So, so I'm I'm once again very very thankful to be able to bring God's word to you today, and and specifically bring um, all that I have been learning through this Psalm. Psalm 93 is a it's a it's a short and to the point Psalm. However, it is rich in its meaning and its application. So let me, I'm going to start off today by reading the psalm for us. This is Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Let me see if I can make the transition real quick. Just a minute. All right. Hey, look at that. It worked. All right. Thank you. Sorry about that. As a, as a teacher for many years, I really did relish teaching geology. I, uh, I personally find it fascinating because geology is simply an attempt to um, explain what we see all around us, right? We see, the, we see the world around us, and so that geology is an attempt to explain that. Um, and in geology, you learn about several powerful forces at work, things like tectonic plates moving underneath us, wind erosion, and all that that can do. But arguably, the most impactful force on the planet, maybe not the most powerful, but the most it's done the most, is, is water. We see it all around us. We see its impacts all around us, whether it's in a, a body of water like a, a, a river, lake, or ocean, and what that does to the landscape. I don't know if you guys have seen pictures of, of what's been going on in Yellowstone right now, because that's um, well, quite drastic right there. Um, also things like uh, erosion, so rain, snow, and erosion from that, even ice from a glacier, and that how it has changed much of the North American continent. The Grand Canyon was created by water. Um, but here in the psalm, this psalmist is using the picture of waves and floods and, and the damage and the, the power that is exerted there as an attempted comparison to God's power, and yet it falls short. All the power that we see water exerting does not compare to what our God can do. And that's what we're going to dive into today, pun fully intended there, uh, to see our king on his throne and to recognize his glorious majesty. Let's hope this works too. Uh, so before we do, though, I think a quick overview. Nope. Can we go to the next slide? Uh, before we do, a quick overview of the psalm will be quite helpful. There we go. I think I might control it now. I got it now. Thank you. Uh, so first, we see uh, from the psalm that there is really a little indication of either when it was written by or even who it was written by. 
Um, some people believe that it was written about the time of, of great angst, something like when the Assyrians were, were threatening Jerusalem. But we have no hard evidence of that. And frankly, this is a particular psalm. The themes here would really fit into just about any time period and situation. We are always in constant need of the fact that our Lord is on the throne, or who is on the throne. Um, and then from history, we see this song. Actually, this this psalm um, was written most likely to be regularly sung on the sixth day of the week, so Friday in that case, um, as the people of God were preparing for their Sabbath rest. Um, you can see direct connections back to Psalm 92, obviously just in front of it. And Psalm 92 was designed to be sung on the Sabbath. Uh, and so you see similar themes and messages in that particular psalm. Both psalms are actually using the natural world to point to the power and protection provided by our mighty God and to his followers. Now, the idea of Sabbath is important, I think, because with that in mind, both psalms actually point to the final hope and the rest that God's followers have waiting for us that ultimately we know is only found through Christ. Now, this, this really can be considered, as, as some commentators mentioned, a, a creation or a new creation psalm, since it was supposed to be sung on, on the sixth day, so it would be the, the day that humans were created. Um, and we, we see this particular psalm very much as an, as an already but not yet. I know Matt's talked about that a lot, but an already but not yet part of Scripture, when in fact we are, we're waiting for this. Now, all this is absolutely true and factual, but we're still waiting for a final fulfillment of this as well. We also see that the psalmist in this, in this psalm is using what's called building parallelism, and you see that here, the, the, the structure of the poetry is called building parallelism, where the psalmist states an idea and then restates that same idea multiple times, but actually adds a, adds a little something new to it every time. We see this especially in verses 3 and 4, but you see hints of it elsewhere as well throughout the psalm. Um, finally, I wanted to point out that this is what is referred to as a kingly psalm, where the psalmist is pointing everyone specifically to the royal majesty of our God. Other psalms like this are Psalm 29 and then Psalms 95 through 99, which uh, those are fantastic psalms. I would definitely encourage you to, to, to check them out. Uh, a special characteristic of these types of psalms is that one or more natural feature of the universe are pointed out, and then the psalmist goes on to describe how that feature then connects back to our great king. Things like, in this case, we see waters are powerful and impressive, but our God is greater. Trees and storms are impressive, but our monarch is more. So we see um, this is what's called a, a kingly psalm. Now, I thought in, in going through this, I, a couple of different ways you can go through this, but the way I thought would be best is to actually go through the psalm first. We're going to go through the psalm a couple different times. The first time we're going to go through it, we're just going to try to understand what the psalmist is telling us, okay? So understand what he's saying, the words he's using, try and dig out what, what the meaning is there. Uh, and then we're going to go back through the psalm to work on applying. I know that's not necessarily always possible, um, but we have a shorter psalm like this, so we're going to take advantage of that opportunity here. Um, the, let's, let's start then with the, with the structure of the psalms, because there are, there are really three main groupings in the psalm, and you, if you have an ESV, you've probably seen them already kind of delineated out, but it's verses 1 and 2 are together, verses 3 and 4, and then finally verse 5. Uh, so let's go ahead and, and, and once again jump in 
Once again, pun fully intended there. Um, So first of all, in the opening first two verses of the psalm, we see that Yahweh rules his kingdom. That's my my first point there. Yahweh rules his kingdom. As Jonathan explained to us last week, the capitalized Lord is the name Yahweh, as he talked about the, the personal name for God. Now, these first two verses are very picturesque, for they give us multiple images. First, we see the picture of a, of a monarch taking his throne. He is, he is being robed in the royal garments, and they are described here as majestic. With this, we also see the idea of God putting on his sword belt. Um, this is, once again, a, another a symbol of his glory and power. Uh, we don't necessarily have a, have a frame of reference for this. I'm not sure we want to give any of our elected leaders a sword. But this would have been the custom of the time, and frankly, it would have connected with readers and listeners of, of many different eras. This belt represents the great power that comes with the position as the king of the entire world. Uh, we also see that his robes, they're not just, they're not just pretty, right? They are majestic robes. These are the robes that are only fitting the great king of all other kings. So pure and beautiful that would hurt the eyes to look at them. All this sets our God apart from the rest of the universe as the great ruler of all. One commentator also pointed out that that while all this is factually true, it is also in a way describing the act of God ruling overall. He's not just some worthless figurehead overall, but rather as an engaged and empowered sovereign of all, who is always in the act of stabilizing his world. I personally find it challenging to manage the handful of things that God has given me to, to manage. Um, and in our experience, even looking at the rulers around us, our observation of them should not necessarily color our perception of God because God, Yahweh, is a perfect and mighty ruler who can actually keep all the plates, or in this case, planets, spinning. He is that great. I think that the idea expressed in the, the next part of the verse here, uh, the fact that the world... Ellery, can you get my Bible out of my bag, please? I forgot to bring that up. Uh, I think that the, the um, idea expressed in the next part of the verse, the idea that the, the world is established, is, is helpful with this. Now, interestingly enough, interestingly enough at, at least to me, I'll say it like that, um, this psalm was actually, or this verse was actually used as for scientists to argue against Copernicus and his radical idea about the earth revolves around the sun. Now, the psalmist here and elsewhere, because this statement, the, the world is established, is used multiple times in the psalms, he's not trying to set a scientific argument about the nature of the physical movement of the universe, but rather is pointing to the fact that stability comes with God as the ultimate sovereign. Now, you may be thinking, as I did as I was reading through this, but wait, the earth moves all the time, and one day it's going to be burned up, right? It's going to go away. And the correct answer is yes, it is. The physical world, in fact, is far from the idea of never being moved. However, based on the context here, based on the, the entire psalm, what we see here, I believe that when the psalmist is using the word world in this case, he's actually talking about the system that God set in place, the system that he ordained 
to ensure that all things are moving forward. Something like, uh, well, the psalmist here really is praising the work that God has done because it truly is sure and steadfast. The, the moral order that God has put in place here is sure and unmovable. Whatever, whatever the prevailing mindset of each different generation, truth is established. Good is a set point, and there's only one path to eternal rest. So because God reigns in majesty and because his throne is set firm, we can trust what God has put in place for all his creation. Now, multiple of my sources pointing out that, uh, going back to the very beginning of this part of the verse, uh, verse 1, um, points out the idea that this st- this, the psalm starts off with a powerful and supremely wonderful words. So Yahweh reigns, the Lord reigns. So much is wrapped up in those words and so much, is, so much more is then conveyed as well. One commentator said it was almost like the victory cry after a great battle. So two armies have converged, the dust has then settled, and one army just starts yelling and screaming about the power of, and glory of their particular monarch. That's, that's really what we're seeing here. We're going we're gonna to talk more about that image here in just a little bit. But at the very beginning of the psalm, we see the most important part, we, well, that all we need to hear really, is that Yahweh, the Lord, reigns. Um, commentators also point out this statement uh, by the psalmist, seemingly on purpose, is very similar to other ancient civilizations' decrees and uh, most monarchs of the time, uh, when the psalm was written, even before and after the psalm was written, um, would say something like this. And the psalmist is really using this structure. And when the psalmist is using a structure, they're using it in a way to point out the distinction between the two uses, right? When somebody like Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar uses this, and then when God would say this, this is something that really can be only said factually of God. Only one monarch is still in existence, and only one being in the entire universe will always exist. And so this can only be said of them. What an incredible thought there. I thought that was a great image. Now, I I don't think we can leave this just the first verse here without bringing this back to what Christ did for us, the gospel work of Christ. Yes, what the psalmist is saying, as I've already mentioned, is absolutely true and right for all time periods, but there is also a sense that we are really missing part of God's rule on this earth, and that's why Jesus came. Christ came to preach the good news of what God's kingdom would actually look like and then act in love and great sacrifice to then do the work necessary to make a path to God for all who would follow. We only see glimpses of this great kingdom right now, but one day all those who submit to Christ and his rule in their lives will get to physically see and participate in the reign of our majestic Christ. This is what we are, we are longing for. This is what we, are, we, we put our hope in. We long to see Christ physically arrayed like this before all people and then watch as all finally and completely bend the knee to him as we see in Revelation will happen. We know this day is coming because we read about it throughout the word. And, and as we're going to see later on, God's word is trustworthy. So we know that it will happen. Then, then quickly with verse 2, we see here in the second verse that, that God has also always reigned 
over his kingdom. He, it says, your throne is established and mold. You are from everlasting. He has been reigning on this kingdom, reigning in this kingdom, even before time began. God's throne is set and has always been set. There's no beginning point and there will be no end point. We have the ability to put the influence of different monarchs or impressive people on a timeline, right? They took over a set point, a set point and then they are deposed or gotten rid of it at a different point. But we can't do that to this kingdom. We can't do that to Yahweh's kingdom. Yahweh's throne was there before the timeline and will remain long after our sense of time and history have faded away. Something like this points to the power and the glory of our God and tells us once again how much better his kingdom is than any other idea of sovereignty that we may have. Now, as we, as we move, continue to move throughout the passage, the, the first two verses are very powerful. They're important, but it gets better, actually. We see in the next two verses, the psalmist starts to see the opposition to the reign of God, but that God is better. As we've already mentioned, water is one of the most powerful natural forces in the known universe. It is responsible for most of what we see in the natural world. Watching a large body of uh, rage in the middle of a storm is an impressive and scary thing, right? We don't stand a chance if we were to try to attempt to brave something like that on our own. And really, that is the image that, our, that the psalmist is trying to paint. There is, seemingly, there is seemingly an unstoppable force at work, and there's nothing that we can do about it, but our God is different. We see in verse 4, our Lord, uh, the Lord on high, is mighty. One commentator brings to mind the, the, brings, brings the idea that these waves mentioned are, are probably actually an allusion to the enemies of God and how they seem to just constantly rise up and fall down like the waves of the shore. The enemies of the kingdom of God just keep coming. They keep roaring their disdain for the kingdom. In the larger context of the psalm, it makes a lot of sense. We start off by hearing how God sits on the throne, how he has established this world, how he is the supreme majesty in the universe, and then move to the view of the opposition to his throne. And, and it's a significant opposition. It's not just a simple indifference to God, right, or even a, a minor push against what God is doing. This is a major attack about, uh, on who God is and what he is about, on his kingdom. This is perceived as if there were a massive storm coming to try to attempt to obliterate God's kingdom. Now, taking a, a quick step back. Oh, I'm way behind. There we go. Sorry. Uh, now, taking a quick step back, um, we generally do see, as I've already mentioned, in a kingly psalm, uh, the psalmist uses natural parts of creation and then connects them back to what that means to the power of God. And so even just taking, if we were to take the illusion out of this, this is still incredibly amazing about how the fact that our God is mightier than the floods. We could go on and on with stories about the power of water, but that doesn't even compare to the power and the majesty of our God. He is greater. He is mightier than everything, including the natural forces that are at work. God is mightier than them all. Exa they don't stand a chance. Exactly like the waves that we see as soon as they hit the shore, 
no matter how large and scary they may be, no matter how loud, no matter how wide they are, they are dashed on the shore and are no more. Our God is greater than all these things. Our God is, as we see here in verse 4, sitting on high, ruling and reigning over all things. All things are under his care and in his hand, and he alone is powerful enough to do something about everything. Now, the psalmist here uh, really wants us to see the great contrast between the floods mentioned in verse 3 and then the eternal throne of our God in verse, uh, verses 1 and 2, really. Uh, the waves are scary. They can do damage. They are intimidating, much like the enemies of God. But they don't stand a chance when compared to the eternal rock of God, the eternal rock of Christ and what he is able to do. Our God is mightier. And as we're going to see in a little bit, this should then color our response to any opposition that we may face. And I'm getting ahead of myself. That's the, that's the application, but hold on to that. Now, um, bringing this back to the image of an enemy, uh, an enemy of God marching towards his city or his kingdom, we see that once again, they're, they're no match for God. Even the, the largest, loudest, most well-organized force is no rival to the might of our reigning king. These armies, like the waves of the shore, will be dashed and will be no more. All their roaring, all their impressive displays, all their attacks will be thwarted and will prove to be no equal to our Yahweh, who is currently and actively sitting on the throne of the universe. One commentator, this is a very sweet thought, one, one commentator brought to image the mind of Christ, uh, the, the image to mind of Christ, there we go, uh, calming the waves of the sea on Galilee. Jesus himself demonstrated that he was mightier than the floods to his followers as they were being thrown around by the physical waves of Galilee. In fact, he was, he was so powerful that a simple command from his lips stopped everything. The, the amazing thing was the, the type of power this demonstrated. So, so Christ didn't have to, to muscle up and fight the waves as the disciples were trying to do, right? He didn't have to go all Pecos Bill on them and lasso the storm. That's a reference to an early American tall tale if you didn't get that one. How about, how about Hulk, okay, right? He didn't have to go and Hulk against the storm and try to fix it that way. No, he didn't have to do any of that. He simply gave directions and they obeyed. That is real power. That is incredible might, and that is our Yahweh. He is mightier than the waves that we see. Finally then, in verse 5, we see what our response should then be to this great news. Verse 5 really is describing what should be the natural outcome and the outworking of verse 1. If, in fact, the Lord reigns, which he does, then he is going to make these royal decrees, and these decrees are going to be, as we see here, very trustworthy, to be specific. And so we are called here to listen to what our king is telling us to do. We're called to submit to our king in all that we do, and then be about his work. As the, as the ruler of the universe then, moving on to the second part, as the ruler of the universe, we are then, there are then going to be specific parameters around us as his subjects interacting with God, and they're laid out right here as well, right? It says holiness. Holiness is the only appropriate response to all that we know about our king. 
And so we are called to live and work and serve our king, serve his kingdom with this defining trait. It is befitting his house. Much can be said and should be said because this is obviously a big deal to our king because we see it all throughout scriptures. Now, just a quick clarification. Um, This could actually be describing God himself, the, the fact that God is holiness and his house is perfectly holy, which is once again completely true and right. God's house is perfectly holy because he is leading it. But I, I think that there's also the idea here, and it's kind of, kind of tearing it apart, that, that those in the house of God should then be doing what they can to protect and preserve the holiness of the house of God. Now, we're not, we're not defending an actual temple here, but as we see elsewhere in the scriptures, we are the house of God. If holiness is the only or proper response to the king of the universe, then we should be working hard in all aspects of our life, of our lives to demonstrate this and to fight those corrupting influences that are all around us. Yes, this means that we should work hard to preserve the truth in our churches and keep them free of heresy and lies so that holiness truly can be proclaimed from our pulpits. But also this means in our private lives, we must pursue holiness as well. We should be working to avoid and run from sin. We should be ensuring that there is constant or consistent intake of the word of God into our hearts that we may then grow. We should be pursuing edifying relationships with others that would encourage us to greater love and service of God. These are all important things that are befitting his, his people, the, pink, the people of the king. Um, now, I think it's a, it's a grace from God that the psalmist didn't say something like, only those who meet this much holiness can approach the king. Or even something like, one must have a, a holiness quotient of, of seven to approach and engage with the king. No, he didn't, didn't say anything like that. He said, this is, it, it is, now it's entirely true that God's standard of holiness is far and above our ability to meet it. But, so one commentator said it this way, this is in the, in the ESC study notes, and I would, this is really helpful for me, it says this, only those who constantly pursue holiness will constantly enjoy God. That was a good, good way to frame that particular idea. We're never going to be able to do enough to hit this holy mark. And as the stretch of the scriptures teach us, we as God's fallen subjects are only able to come to the king through the great work of Christ. He alone was the one to free and redeem us, and we are entirely dependent on his holiness in this. Now, that's, so that's, we, we've gone through the psalm once, so we were work, we've kind of torn it apart a little bit. Now we're going to work on starting to apply the psalm, and you, you've probably noticed, getting ahead of myself, um, probably noticed I've, I already kind of started applying it to, to some degree, but I, I do want to spend some time really digging in, because this is really, really good and really, really helpful. Um, as we see in the passage, God's decrees are trustworthy. And so let's really try to get as practical as we can. Um, and I, I see a, a direct application point in each of the three sections. So going back up to verses 1 and 2, we see these first two verses simply point to the power and the glory of our great king. The fact that God is robed in majesty, the fact that the world and the system that he has established will never move, 
and the fact that uh, he sits on an eternal throne should simply cause us to rest in our king. As we follow the logic that we see in the first section, it points us to his power and our frailty, his eternality, but also our finiteness, his majesty, and frankly, our distance from that glory. We are not like our king. No matter how hard we try, no matter how high we climb up on the corporate ladder or even the the political totem pole, we are still no match for our king. No matter how much we work out or try to improve our physical body that we have been given, our power is still no match to everything our God is and to whatever our God, and no match match whatsoever to our God. As we've we've already mentioned before, as I've already mentioned before, we see this, this over and over again in history, that a monarch will rise and take power, but then will fall and die and fade away into history. Yes, we may remember the monarch's name and talk about them in in history classes, but there's nothing compared to the fact that our God is, has always been, is still, and will always be ruling and reigning on his throne. All we can do then is submit then to this rule. All we can do is when we see how we stack up against this king is stop and surrender our own plans and ways and then engage fully with what our God is calling us to do. All we can do is rest in our king. Now, that's really hard to do, right? We are naturally bent towards wanting to set up our own kingdom and order. We want things to fall in place the way that we think they should, and when they don't, we get upset, disillusioned, and angry because our kingdom plan isn't working out the way it was supposed to. We want to sit on this eternal throne. We demonstrate that in our actions. We want to put on these majestic robes so that everyone will be impressed with our ability and glory. Submitting to the fact that Yahweh is on the throne is not a natural or easy thing to do because of our sin nature. But that's the only option we have. Living in denial of this truth will only hurt us in the end. Any response other than submission to him is foolish and will only end in our humiliation and pain. Now, on the positive side of things, resting in God also brings about so much peace and help. It is good for our soul and body to respond in this way. When we make the conscious choice to submit to God and his kingdom, we get help and aid from a God who is mightier than one, of the, than, than one of the most powerful natural forces that we know. We get to rest in the one who has established the, uh, the world, and his system will never be moved. Yes, we are called to give up our own wants and desires, but what we gain is then so much better. Alfred Eldersheim, in a book called The, Diary Golden, the, sorry, the Golden Diary of Heart Converse with Jesus in the Book of Psalms, a lot of prepositional phrases in that name, but works, says it this way. I would not exchange the assurance which these two words, Jehovah reigneth, which that's how it was translated back in the version he was using, Jehovah reigneth conveys, convey for all the wisdom combined with all the power of this world. Received into my heart, they are the solution for every difficulty, the end of all perplexity. 
Not sure I can say it much better than that. It may be hard, but it is good to rest in the truth that Yahweh reigns. And so let's do that. Let's lay down our arms, raise that white flag, and come to God and follow him. Let's rest in Yahweh. Next, I believe we are called in the next two verses then to run to the king. He alone is our refuge in the storms of life, and so that we so that when we come so that we can come to him in these times. We've already talked at length about the, the peril that anyone caught in a storm or flood faces because of the natural power of water. But we see and know that our God is greater than both. He is mightier than an entire ocean or an invading army doing their best flood impersonation. Both forces don't stand a chance. That knowledge should be of great and eternal comfort for us. So when we are faced with terrifying odds, great powers, or even just simply the, the daily fight, we know we have one who loves us and is for us. Another uh, theologian, Abraham, writes from a couple years ago, based on his use of the English language, said it this way about verse 4. So this is commentary on verse 4. It's split up in two. So uh, it's, he says this, therefore, Consider not so much thy distress as thy deliverer. And when men's malicious combinations may affright thee, <laughs> scare thee, it's a bit, lots of big words there, let divine association support thee. The danger may exceed thy resistance, but not God's assistance. The enemy's power may surpass thy strength, their subtlety outwit thy prudence, but neither can excel the wisdom and might of God that is with thee. O oh, learn, therefore, to try God in his strength, to trust him in difficulties, and when the merciless waves are ready to swallow thee, commit thyself to his custody. The mariner in straits looks up to heaven, do thou so. And remember that when the waters of affliction are never so high, yet... The Lord on high is mightier than they. We do have one who is greater than everything else in the universe. And so, when God calls you to walk through the waves of pain and hurt, remember that our God is mighty and run to him. Finally then, in verse 5, we see that because our God's words are trustworthy, we should then rely on our king. This absolutely means we need to be regularly reading and understanding and engaging with these decrees. We should be hearing and reading God's word consistently, whether that be a, a corporate worship service like we're in today and your, your own private quiet time with God or, or ideally both, right? Uh, I think that another way to do this would be to ensure that... Um, much of the, the music that you're even listening to connects back to this as well. And there are many fantastic options for this. I would especially recommend one newer album by Sovereign Grace Music called Unchanging God. It's a, it's a collection of songs based on psalms, one of which we sang today. Uh, and, and I would encourage you to check that album out. There's one on Psalm 90, which was amazing. And I was sad we didn't get to get to sing that for uh, uh, when Brian spoke that, uh, but that was very helpful. So, so just another, just a, a helpful tool right there. 
Podcasts and books are obviously other great ways to, to engage with this for you and your family. And, and however, however this looks in your life, you need to be putting in these regularly, regular rhythms in your life so that you're hearing what God is telling you to do. If this statement is true in verse 5, that your decrees are trustworthy, then we need to be reading them. We need to be, um, we need to be getting them into our heart. We need to grow, uh, we, this is how we grow and then seek understanding and submit to our great ruler. Now, we have already talked a little bit about the idea of this idea of holiness befitting your house in, in, at the end of verse, or the middle of verse 5 there. Um, and, but, but I want to come back to that real quick because it is so very important. God is perfectly holy. And as the creator, founder, and sustainer of his house, all those who, uh, all those who seek to be part of this house should be following in these steps and live as such. Once again, our, our holiness is not ultimately resting on us, but it does rest on the work of Christ for us. And so we are called then to pursue Christ-likeness. We are empowered to hate sin so that we can then run from it and make choices that Christ would make. The Holy Spirit is enabling us in this work. So we're not, we're not doing any of this to try and earn our place in, place in heaven, but this is how we should act so that we can be, uh, uh, this is how we show, sorry, is that we show that we are part of God's house. We do have a part to play in this call on our lives. And so, as we are learning God's decrees and relying on Christ's work, let's pursue this holiness in our, uh, in our lives, We're relying on God for that holiness. So, where does, where does all this leave us? We have, we have walked through this kingly psalm and we have seen Yahweh as our eternal and majestic ruler. We have seen him stop all opposition to his throne. And finally, we have seen what our response then to be, should be then to our ruler. All of these things work together to give us a better picture of who we are serving and who one day all will bow to. As I mentioned at the very beginning of this message, all this is currently true. But we are awaiting a final fulfillment as well when Christ will come to rule physically on this earth and when we get to participate in that rule, all those who are submitting to him. Satan will attempt to actually say some of these things about himself, but he will be wrong. And his followers, he and his followers will be stopped and crushed and absolute holiness will prevail. We long for the day when Christ returns and when Christ, when, when this visible kingdom, we, we, get to, we get to engage with this visible kingdom. And so we cry out, Hosanna, which is save us. C.H. Uh, Spurgeon ended his commentary on this passage, on this psalm, with the following prayer. So I'm going to read this and then we'll pray after that. It says this, O thou who art so great and gracious a king, reign over us forever. We do not desire to question or restrain thy power. Such is thy character that we rejoice to see thee exercise the rights of an absolute monarch. All power is in thine hands, and we rejoice to have it so. Hosanna, Hosanna. Let's continue in prayer. 
God, it's, it's really hard to follow words as powerful as these because they carry so great a message. We do long to see and participate in your perfect reign. We long to see holiness and justice rule over the whole earth and your enemies crushed. We long to grow in understanding and applying of your decrees and grow in holiness. But we're not up to this, accomplishing any of this in our own strength. We need you, God, to come and save us from our state so that we may then better submit to your kingdom and be about the work that you have called us to. We ask that you would continue this great work here in this church in Brighton and the entire world. And we ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's spend just a couple more moments considering how to apply these words to our own lives.